calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover. And you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. You're listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to Amanda Hackert, who is the editor in chief of Indianapolis Monthly. It's an excellent conversation. She's really quite charming. And she's Southern. Very rarely do I get to talk to somebody else up here who sounds like the people that I. I'm writing about and spend my time around growing up. Just a reminder, the Downtown Riders Jam Volume 2 is happening Wednesday, November 12th at Indie Reads Books. We have our friends from Curbside Splendor Publishing in Chicago coming down. Bill Hillman, Ben Tanzen, Erica T. Worth will be there. Trey Dowell is coming up from St. Louis, author of The Protectors. Angela Jackson-Brown, who is in Muncie, along with Lynn Jones. Angela was just on the podcast, so we're very excited. It's going to be a big day. You can find us at thegeekypress.com backslash events. You can also find us on Facebook at The Geeky Press. All the information is there. Sign up for the newsletter while you're there. It's a semi-regular, awesome Email of cool shit that we are doing, that we know about, books that we have out, things that other people have written that we think is are cool, events. I think I said that. So make sure that you sign up while you're there. We're already starting to think about Volume 3. I think that's going to be maybe sometime in late February, possibly early March before I head out for about 10 days. So if you're interested in participating in that, by all means, let me know. So it's interesting because all of this is swirling. It is just a few weeks before the Riders Jam, and my first 
public reading, really, since 2003, because I don't generally do those kinds of things. And I'm very excited, right? It's a, uh, this is um, pretty much my favorite time to be a writer and to be putting on these events when they're coming together and all the details are there. I'm just running around at this point talking to folks, talking it up, uh, recruiting for it, running advertisements, really all the fun things that go into production. The first six weeks is always a nightmare because I don't know who's going to participate. I don't know who wants to be here. I don't know what's going to happen. And then we're still trying to build our relationships out into the different writing spheres, which is why I'm so happy to talk to Amanda because you know, I come from the magazine world, and that's the um, where I cut my teeth, although I was – I did more national stuff, and the, and the city and regional magazines are, um, you know, they have different they have different uh, goals. They have different business structures than some of the larger larger national magazines. What's interesting is that you know, she Indianapolis Monthly is part of Emmis, and I know and I'm, was friends with the editor at Cincinnati Monthly who used to work with my editor at Wired. That's also part of Emma's. And I know that uh, Jay and Cincinnati Monthly always does provocative stuff. Um, Texas Monthly, which is part of Emma's, always does. Um, you know, they have three or four different areas. True crime is one that they really um, excel at. And it was fascinating to talk to... Amanda, and listen, and, 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 and talk about what long form means here in town. And we talk about some stories that they've done that are just, that will, I think, if you haven't read them, will make you go pick up the magazine. And if you have, you will go, yes, yes, this is amazing. So it's, this is a, in some ways, a, a step back into the world that I came from, um, outside of the um, books and the teaching and all that stuff, just to sit down and just talk about the future of these things. Um, you will notice two things. The first, why I need a producer, for some reason, the external audio switched to internal audio, and so it sounds a little bit like we are very far away, even though we had these wonderful microphones, and it's because it was recording through the computer. The second is that I get a little bit wonky at the end and started talking about technology, and I don't know why I did that, because... Uh, it's the natural default that I have, which is to return to business models and how this stuff works and why, why like, where do magazines fit into the larger publishing world. So, um, you know, the last two minutes is a little bit crazy, and I know that. Uh, you will find that out, too. Um, Amanda is uh, was just lovely to talk to and sort of indulged me, I think, and uh, did very much like what Jason Ponton used to do at Technology Review, just nod, and then move back into putting out a magazine. But everything in between, from zero to the last two minutes, is fabulous. Uh, and it's, I think, a really interesting perception and discussion about where long-form writing fits in. And the one thing that I wish that we had gotten into more, which we didn't, was the idea that newspapers and magazines are different skill sets and that the things that you need to write are different in each of those 
realms, and it's not something that people generally think about. And I know that newspaper, the newspaper people that I know think that you can very easily make the transition to magazine, and I have not ever found that to be true. Uh, I find most newspaper writing to be a little bit monotonous. Every once in a while, you will find a good feature writer in magazines, but it's different. There's a difference between um, writing up quotes and events and the things that happened within a news context and writing literary narrative stories that are nonfiction. So that part of the conversation, um, I wish we'd have had a little bit more of, but I think I could have had an hour of that. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was plenty. Here's what I do know. Amanda is great. You should all pick up the Indianapolis Monthly. We will now get to our conversation. Okay, so we were actually just talking about where you're from, and I never get to talk to people that have accents that are like mine, although yours is um, yours is better. So you're from South Carolina. Yes, I'm from um, a little town uh, called Inman, South Carolina, and it's in the upstate, um, not the upcountry. Uh-huh. I don't want to rebrand it the upcountry, but the upstate. So what's the difference between the upstate and the upcountry? Well, um, so... And, and uh, the lower part of South Carolina is called the Low Country. And it's become, the Low Country has become a really popular Charleston uh-huh. area. That's a beautiful it's, town. It's, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's been a lot of people moving um, into that city in the last probably five, even five years. Um, and so people just assume because that's the Low Country that we're the Up Country. Yeah. It's in the upstate. There is um, this, so my family's from, I'm writing a book about Appalachia and my family, they're they're infamous sort of in 300 years of family history we have. People in the country talk totally differently about geography, Mm -hmm. right? Like there are creeks and hollows like that are like things like upstate, like just not a thing you hear in the city. So how do you end up here? How do you end up in Indianapolis? Well, um... Long story. Yeah. That's what we're here for. <laughs> um, so I um, went to the University of South Carolina, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I was interested in so many different things. I went in undeclared. I took like a bunch of crazy classes from 3D art to Italian to feminist history. And, um, you know, my father was in journalism. He was in broadcast journalism. He um, uh, works at a, the NBC affiliate in Greenville, South Carolina. And so, you know, journalism was always sort of a part of my life. Um, you know, TV's always on the news. We always have a stack of magazines, multiple newspapers. But I never really thought um, that, that that would be uh, something I would end up doing. Um, although my mom always called me nosy. I prefer <laughs> to say I had a nose for years. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, so at South Carolina, you know, finally they were like, yeah, you need to pick a major. And um, so I... I, I, you know, sort of tried to narrow down the things that I was really, um, you know, that I really enjoyed, was really passionate about. I loved writing, and I loved art. And so looking down that list of majors, I saw advertising, and I thought, okay, maybe this could be that great combination of advertising. How long did that last? 
Uh, I, I mean, I graduated with a degree. That's your degree in advertising. Yeah. Really? And it was under the journalism school, so I did yeah. take some basic journalism classes. But, um, you know, and I took some, um, had some ad and PR internships. And um, uh, I always tell students when I talk to them that internships are just as important for figuring out what you don't want to do. Oh, absolutely. As for what you want to yeah. do. Um, and I just quickly saw, you know, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life trying to sell Heinz ketchup yeah. over Heinz to people, yeah. <laughs> or if you're in Indiana, Red Bull. Um, and so, uh, you know, it came time to graduate, and, um, you know, I told my parents, I was like, I, I don't think this is what I want to do for the rest <laughs> of my life, and they were like, mm, okay, all right, so what's your, what's your backup plan here? Um, I don't, now, hang on. So, sure. so did, as a kid, were you like a tinker? Like, is that like is that what you did? Like, played with art, played with writing. Like, were you writing and reading all the time? Um, I was. I was always writing. Um, I had a series of diaries, journals. Um, <laughs> I've told my best friend that if I'm to meet an untimely end, she has to burn off uh-huh. immediately. Um, I always took art classes, um, and you know, there were there were there were hints that you know I um, went on a you know, I would go on a field trip with my elementary school class and come back home with my dad's typewriter and make up a newsletter about it. Um, you know, so there, there were hints along the that's way. That's more than a hint. But <laughs> yeah. I was just so interested in so many things, and that's what I really think, um, you know, uh, what I you know, have come to realize about journalism is that it allows people who are interested in a lot of different topics to take those deep dives and to, just to learn. I love yeah. to learn. I love to figure something out. I'm curious, and I think that's a really important quality of being a journalist. So were you, um, were they supportive of, like, were your parents, were they like, oh, yeah, here's, like, do your art or make a newsletter? Or... <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were they were always completely supportive of, um, of, of, of everything I did, really. Um, I'm sure that they have raised uh, their eyebrows over the years at a few of my um, life decisions, but they've always, you know, supported yeah. um, supported me. Now, do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have a younger brother. Okay. What does he do? And he's a cop. Okay. <laughs> he's in law enforcement. <laughs> and, um, so he's also naturally curious, but in a different yes, kind got, of way. He's, he's got all the good stories. <laughs> um, and what did your mom do? She's a pharmacist. Holy so, moly. So you yeah, have a smart family. Yeah, she um, she was very inspiring in that she was very much like a, a, a leader at her hospital. She's been there for decades. She was like one of the first female managers. Yeah, yeah. Sort of broke that glass ceiling there. Um, my dad's very inspiring. He's um, the assistant news director at his TV station. He's been there, um, you know, since the late 70s. Um, he just loves what he does, and, um, you know, he just – we just found out he – He's getting a Lifetime Achievement Award from the South Carolina Broadcasters Association next year. So we're, we're all pretty thrilled for him. But what, I, what really inspired me um, for my dad especially is that, um, you know, while my mom liked her job um, and liked what she did, like my father was excited about his mm-hmm. job. And, you know, uh, we would get those calls at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, you know, something's on fire. Like, you know, <laughs> right. My dad's like, you know, up and ready to go. Yeah. And, um, you know, he gets that that sort of adrenaline rush from from news. And I always really, for a long time, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to love it as much as my dad loved yeah. his job. So you get to South Carolina University. You don't know what you want to do. You graduate. Mm-hmm. And what's the moment where you go, mm-hmm. um, I had hints even before graduation that this was, this was not, you know, what I wanted to do. Um, 
and you know, sometimes it's it's okay to feel lost. I've had several times yeah. since then where I'm like, am I making the right decision? Yeah. What, you know? I'm 42. It doesn't stop. I know. Like you expect <laughs> at some point, like you're going to know, and I'm like, nah, so. it's not how that happens. Um, but uh, you know, I had I had already lined up a couple of uh, internships that I finished out, um, and then I started. I thought, you know, I always loved magazines. Um, in advertising, when we sort of had to make an ad for ourselves at the end of the, the year, I made a magazine promoting myself. <laughs> so you're making newsletters as a kid from field trips, yes. like your projects are magazines. Right. And so I just sort of sent out my, um, my resume and um, um, some writing that I'd done to magazines across the Southeast and very naively. And, um, <laughs> you know, and they're really that, didn't, that didn't generate yeah. 50 interviews? No. no. <laughs> Oh, you have no experience whatsoever. Right. And, and you yeah. got an advertising degree. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but um, Atlanta Magazine, um, which is Atlanta City Magazine, um, uh, told me, well, we don't have any positions open but <laughs> for someone like you, but we do have a great internship program. Yeah. And um, so I went in. Um, you know, they, they asked me for my clips, and... Um, he said, here's my magazine about myself. Well, I didn't do that, but I did say, I did completely say, uh-huh, 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 sure, great. And then as soon as we got off the phone, I went and Googled what our clips, because I had no idea. Really? Yeah. So were you, did you write at all through school? Like, was that a thing that you did? Yeah, I mean, you know, I took creative writing classes, yeah. which that, those ended up being the clips. Right. And then I'd um, done some sort of, like... You know, in class, um, uh, you know, reporting and yeah. stories for different classes. So that's that's what I ended up sending. I sent stories, that uh, nonfiction stories, um, news stories I've written for class, yeah. and creative writing. So this is interesting because when I worked at Wired, um, Katrina Heron was our editor, and Alex Hurd is now at Outside Magazine, and. I was an editorial assistant, so I took all of the pitches, all of the, you know, like that was my job was to bring them into the room. And they were very clear, like they hired creative writers. Mm -hmm. They were like, writers know how to write. I can teach you how to report or they would put someone like me with people to help. But they were, it was rare that a, no newspaper person ever got in. Mm -hmm. That just went in the garbage. Um, And journalists, if they had done other long form stuff, Uh but creative writers, man, they loved them because they could they knew how to tell a story. Right. I mean, you know, that was really or write a story. My, my only experience. Yeah. You know, we, we talk about that now. I mean, it's you know, um, both you know, in Atlanta, I guess, especially. I mean, we had some um, some newspaper writers who um, who tried to make the transition over to magazine writing, and some got it. Yeah. You know, some could get it, and but it's it's very different types of writing and the environment. As I always tell people, like, I've had a couch in every place that I've been that was usable. Yeah. Right? That wasn't gross or piled <laughs> papers. <laughs> but, you know, you know some, some newspaper writers can't get it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it is a different style of writing. And, and so, you know, when I, I got, I ended up getting the internship yeah. at Atlanta Magazine. And um, as soon as I got there, I sort of said, yeah, this is yeah. what I wanted to do. So what, what do you think it was? Uh, there was a couple of things. One was... Um, you know, I loved that city magazines are general interest. So uh-huh. that means that we cover everything yeah. from politics to pancakes. It was your childhood. Well, there you go. And your college, your university. Like, I don't know what I want yeah. to do. So, you know, you could, you could, you know, write stories about things that you're interested in. 
and um, there wasn't really a limit on that as long as you know it was a good idea. Right, and within a city. And within the yeah. city. <laughs> and within the city. Um, and uh, you know, I loved the great tradition of storytelling that was there. Um, you know, I was moving to Atlanta, not really knowing that much about the city, even though I only grew up about three hours away. Um, but one way I sort of got acclimated was just by going back and reading old issues of Atlanta Magazine. And there were so many great storytellers who came through there over the years, who had, you know, some of which had gone on to National Magazines. Um, and just really, you know, going back and reading through those stories was really inspiring. Yeah. Like, this is not just, um, you know, you know well-reported stories about the city, but really just, you know, fantastically um, structured and beautifully written um, stories about the city. So when... Okay, so let's, uh, so many things. Um, what was the first big piece you wrote for them? Did you ever get to write something that was beyond that front of the book, two paragraphs? Um, so Although that's traumatic, too. <laughs> as an intern, um, you know, I was doing um, primarily a lot of fact-checking, which was great for me because, you know, I didn't have any experience yeah. reporting, and so it was almost like re-reporting yeah. each story, um, which was really great. And... Um, I pitched a few smaller pieces, and so, you know, got a couple of what we call front of book pieces yep. in. Um, and was it traumatic? Like, were you afraid, like, when you first turned them in? Um, I just remember, you know, laboring over them. Yeah. You know, it would be like a 60-word blurb, essentially, yeah. and just, like, spending hours. Um, but, you know, it was, and I tell this, you know, to the students who come in here to intern, I mean, I really think internships are what you make of them, yeah. and I was just determined, once I kind of got a taste of Atlanta Magazine, I was just determined to kick ass yeah. and make an, a, a good impression. Those 200-word um, people, like I used to write them at Wired, the front of the book or whatever, it would take me like two weeks. I mean, they can be just as challenging sometimes. It's a, yeah, well, it's even harder to write short, you know. I can do it now because I know what to summarize and how to do it. But then you just, at least I have this like, this is going to be the best 600 or 200 words ever written. Yeah. And then it would come back and they're like, yeah, get, this, get rid of all of this stuff. And like, right. just this is information. Uh-huh. Um, so I found that very traumatizing for me. Like I just, I'm not, I hate that because yeah. I want to tell a ten thousand word story. Right. Which one do you gravitate to? Um, you know. Or are you an editor now? Like, is that the thing that you? Because I think everybody has a skill, right? Yeah. I mean, I know what your title is, but right. I mean, you know, I really, um, I really have come to enjoy and appreciate the shorter writing because I think it's to make that sing while still having it be really well-reported yeah. and be, um, you know, sometimes we'll get in with shorter blurbs and they, they feel, feel really, really fluffy and, you know, the best short writing is just, you know, packed with information, but also, you know, snappy turns of phrase yeah. and um, it can be, it can be an art in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, uh, at Berkeley, I went to graduate school at Berkeley and our, my mentor always said, uh, I should learn something in every sentence. Right. Absolutely. And it shouldn't be, oh, and then here's, like, they did a really good job. Like, that doesn't teach me anything. Uh-huh. Like, every sentence needs to be a reported piece right. and a short piece, which is hard to do. It is. And, you know, I think um, Atlanta Magazine and I think this magazine, too, um, were, you know, they wanted that reporting um, and that writing, but also they were willing to let you take some chances. Mm-hmm. Um 
you know, trying to write a story in the second person. And really? sometimes it, you know, it was, you know, a spectacular failure. Sure, but, sure. but just giving, you know, writers the freedom to develop their voices and develop their storytelling skills, um, I really appreciated that about being at, um, you know, sort of on a smaller staff as at a city magazine. Yeah. And this was in, in Atlanta. That was in Atlanta. So, so most of what you did were the shorter front of the book pieces. Well, that right? was that was you know that I did a few of those as an intern, yeah. and then um, I got hired on to help with like a school guide they were doing. Uh-huh. Um, but then you know when that was over, they were you know it's essentially like, all right, see you Thanks. later. <laughs> um, so you know at that point I did have clips and was able to um, knew what those were. <laughs> knew what those were. And I was able to take those and start pitching stories at other magazines and, and at Atlanta. Um, and so I became a freelancer. And this was an unpaid internship, so I was also working at the mall. Yeah, it almost goes without saying, right? Yeah. Um, so what was your first freelance piece that hit? Like, what was the one that, like, you were like, oh, shit, this is it? Well, they were, you know, they were. these were smaller publications, um, so it was, you know, nothing too earth-shattering mm-hmm. content-wise. Um, but but still, know, there's that moment where you're like, I think I, this is a job. Yeah, I can do this. Because writing doesn't feel like a job when you're a kid. Right. At least it didn't for me. Yeah. Even when I was doing it, I thought, I, if I get fired, I, I can't do anything else. Like, it wasn't a transferable <laughs> skill. Well, and, and kind of like you were saying, um, you know, I remember, you know, those first couple of freelance stories, one of them was like, going to review a new laser tag place, mm-hmm. and one of them was, um, you know, going to, you know, Greek festival, and I just remember, these have to be the most kick-ass, you know, laser tag review, and so there were characters, and there was an arc, and, you know, it's, <laughs> looking back on it now, it seems, uh, you know, I, a, a little naive, but I just remember thinking, like, you know, no matter how sort of um, trivial the subject may seem, I just had to turn it up a notch. Sure. And, um, or try to anyway. But and that's the curiosity of writing. Right. I, I was watching, I make my kids read the This Is Water by uh-huh. David Foster Wallace. Because I think it encompasses everything about, I mean, it's obviously about life, but it's about understanding that other people's experiences are part of the story. Right. right? Like as a writer, you shouldn't just go in and say, here's what happened. Sure. Right? You have to find out what is the thing that is happening for each of them. Right. I just think that to me is what, um, it's always what made me want to be a writer, is understanding how your story, you know, because you walk out of here, I don't know who you are, I didn't know who you were before, but like I'm already forming the story of who I think you are, but that's not interesting. Right. And everyone has their interpretation of how something transpires. Yeah. And finding what you think your story is, I think is that's the, even if it's a laser tag thing, right, because people end up there. Like, I may have played laser tag when I was younger. So you were doing that. Yeah, and, and that, that eventually led to my first real job in journalism. Um, I, did a, I did, I think it was that uh, Greek festival piece for uh, a small, That was the turning that point. That was the turning point um, <laughs> for a, a small magazine in Atlanta called Newcomer Magazine. And it had been started by um, this guy who had moved to Atlanta and was a newcomer himself and felt like he needed... You know, he started, I think, a newcomer's group, yeah. a social group. This was sort of back in, you know, the sort of the advent of, of the internet. And so, you know, it wasn't as easy yeah. as these days to meet up. Um, and so we started this publication. And what I, what I didn't realize um, uh, until I walked into the interview was that it was just 
him. <laughs> and you know, I walk into um, the interview is in the office, which is really an apartment. Right. And my office would be in the living room, and his office was in the bedroom. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, this is either legit or this is the right. beginning of. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be no staff pictures. Right? Right. Um, Will this be one of the moments where your parents were like, right. mm. "How did you do that?" <laughs> uh, I thought we were, thought we were <laughs> yeah. that. Um, but he was legit, and um, you know, he uh, he ended up hiring me. He had been freelancing out basically everything until then, and was ready to hire um, a, a full time editor. And again, I didn't have much experience at that point. Um, to this day, I don't know. Which is good since you're working in his living room. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, he, he took a chance on me, though. And, um, uh, you know, it was a crash course in how to put out a magazine. I mean, I did everything from, thankfully, I did, did not design it. We did have a, a graphic designer. But, um, you know, coming up with story lineups, writing some of those stories myself, working with freelancers. So you were editing right off the bat. Editing. Copy editing, you know, I paid our bills, I managed our office, I actually physically distributed some of the magazines. Um, it's it like was, a high, it's a, it's a, it, it was like a, a, a high class Z. Like that's how that stuff yeah, worked in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Like it just was designed and looked better because you had desktop publishing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, so he did every, he sold all the ads, I did all the editorial work, and um, it was so hard. It was. Yeah. You know, long hours. I remember going home and just like wanting to cry. So How long were you there? I was there for about a year. So you, this was like you, like you were learning how this was bootstrapped and put together. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, I needed that experience. Yeah. Um, you know, it was and at that point it was my dream to one day go back to Atlanta Magazine. And I remember we'd have like a lunch and learn with the editor in chief yeah. uh, at the time, Rebecca Burns, who was who was one of my mentors. And, you know, but at the time, she she was like, you know, I never hired anyone who hadn't worked at their school newspaper. And I was like, just like, oh, great. You know, I've, I'm going to be, you know, penalized because I didn't figure out right. what I wanted to do, you know, quickly enough. And But, I mean, that experience at Newcomer was my school newspaper. You're right, like, right. It was, it was, you know, like I said, a crash course in figuring out how to, you know, not only write and edit, but how to package. I mean, so much of a magazine is packaging. Yeah. And, um you know, it was, it was great for that. So, so I took, you know, when I, I kind of got to a point where I thought that, um, I'd heard that one of the editors was going out on maternity leave. So I took, um, at Atlanta magazine. magazine. And so I took, um, copies of the magazine and like annotated them with post-it notes. Here's what I did. Here's, here's, what, here's I did. what I know how to do now. And I sent it back to Rebecca and, um, she ended, up, awesome. she ended up hiring me yeah. to fill in for the, um, the editor going out. And she was like, you know, I can't guarantee you anything at the end of these three months, yeah. but you know, I thought it was worth it because I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving my full-time job to yeah. do this thing with no guarantee at the end of it. And I thought, you know, at the very least, I'll have, I'll develop another set of skills, you know, maybe it'll lead to something yeah. else. Um, it's weird that, you know, when I, people have asked me where, how I got to where I did, I always tell them, like, there's, there's not, there's literally not a path you can follow. No, it's like, I mean, <laughs> as you can tell from mine, yeah. path, it's like all over the place. Right. And, you know, it's... it's <laughs> Through a living room, right? Like, <laughs> into <laughs> magazines. Like, it's... I, I had a job interview in San Diego at this little magazine once, and while I was there, the sheriffs locked the door because they owed money, and I helped them move equipment out the window, which I'm pretty sure we were breaking some kind of laws. We were right. moving their equipment out, and I thought, 
when I moved out there, I was going to get an RV and park it in front of one of their, that was where I was going to live. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I mean, that's just how you do it. This is how they did it in the 60s. Right. This is how you do it in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, that's, yeah, that was my living room moment where my parents were like, I don't think you should move out to. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't seem like the last. <laughs> yeah, like, why did they padlock it? I'm like, I don't think they paid the bill. Oh, whatever. Yeah. So it seems like this is just this is my um, five cent Lucy pop analysis that writing is a job, like it's a thing that you love. It's not. Is it a passion? Is it that thing that you? The process is. No, it it it, it definitely is. I mean, is it the thing your dad has? I think so. I mean, I've. I've always loved writing and, you know, I love, love, love reading. It's, you know, people are like, what's your hobby? And I'm like, reading? I mean, it's not like anything that exciting. I just, I, um, I, you know, get completely lost, you know, in books and great, you know, magazine articles. And um, Do you think you prefer the editing? Because I have a theory that you're either a great editor or a great writer. I don't think that... It's like newspaper magazine. They're different skills, I think. Yeah, I mean, I I know some great writers who are also great editors, but I think you know what appealed to me was about being becoming an editor, specifically, you know, an editor in chief um, was the ability to get to put together the puzzle that is a magazine every month and being able to call the shots and assign all these great stories that you're excited about to other people. You know, in an ideal world, I'd still get to write some of those yeah. stories myself. And, you know, this job... Um, that doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And I, I, It's why I quit. I, I mean, not here, but right. my last job, I was I built the, the, the digital operation of the magazine. All I did was go on ad calls yeah. to sign things, like check with marketing. I never wrote anything for yeah. like 18 months. It was awful. Well, in Atlanta Magazine, you know, when I, so the, the, the spoiler alert, the person whose job I was filling in for, she didn't come back um, at the end of those three months. So um, I got to stay on staff. Um, and initially, like, she was, you know, the style editor, so I was filling in for the style, um, you know, for the style section. But I quickly saw that I kind of wanted to treat that experience at Atlanta Magazine as, as almost like a learning hospital. Like, I just wanted to soak up as much as possible, because all the editors there were really smart, some really terrific writers, and again, since I didn't have sort of a conventional college journalism experience, like, that was sort of like my journalism yeah. lab. Do you think most of them did? Um, Doc, did you ever ask? More of them did. Than yeah. Did. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my learning, learning was done on the job, you know, through reading. I just, you know, people ask me, what do I need to do? I'm like, just yeah. Pick up all the magazines. You know, you can you can get your hands on and think about it critically about what you like and you don't like and right. what works and how they put this together. It's why I, I'm holding up my Kindle. Um, it's why I carry this thing around. I don't do any print anymore because I'm on the road and travel, uh-huh. and I have all my books, all my magazines. Like I read more now with this because I don't have to haul stuff around with me. Right. Um, and I have not just students, but when I talk to people, like. They think that there's some magic answer to this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's, all, it's in the book. Whatever, like, just read a bunch of books. And, like, every answer you're looking for yeah. is there. Like, I used to write um, Fitzgerald. I would, mm-hmm. I would like, read Gatsby. And then I would, I would write it. I would type it just because I wanted to feel Fitzgerald. Putting those sentences together. Yeah. Like, what was that like? And how, like, 
Did you do any of that stuff? Like when I you were... do, I do um, something that um, is probably a little nerdy, but I really, in both writing, uh, you know, so when I was in Atlanta Magazine, I was doing a lot of, I was a senior editor before I came here. Um, I sort of worked my way up to that point. And I was just doing, it was probably pretty equally writing and editing. I was, um, you know, editing uh, some features, some service packages, uh, but I was also getting to write features and write for different sections of the magazine. And, um, so um, when I came here, you know, I, I, I'm just really obsessed with structure. You know, as a feature writer, it's, you know, that's the difficulty in putting together those 5,000 yeah. word stories is you have so much information and, you know, how do you release that information in an artful way over right. the course of 5,000 words? And so, some, you know, I'm trying to today become, you know, an even better feature um, editor and, uh, so I'll reverse edit stories that I admire. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I read something, I'm like, man, that was great. I'll actually get out my you know pencil and piece of paper and go through and and do an outline yep. of of the story. And it's just it's again, it sounds nerdy to do, but it just helps me sort of visualize how that writer put together um, their reporting and when they decided to release these little tidbits of information yeah. and you know whether they did. You know, did something purely chronologically, or if they did some sort of sleight of hand in a few right. places. And I call that the Tarantino. Yeah. Where like, so you're like, oh, this was three weeks before. Right. Yeah. So, I, you know, I find that really beneficial. Yeah. Um, you know, just to kind of think critically about stories that way. For my book, uh, the second one, my wall was covered in posty notes, mm -hmm. different color or not uh, note cards, mm -hmm. like taped up on the wall. Like, here's what this is going to be. Like, I just need. I need to think that way. And then once I get the idea, I tear them all down, and then I write. I, I don't use that anymore. I need that as the initial structure. Um, but I, one of the things that, at least my students, uh, but even even like when I'm reading books, I try to see what the writer's doing. Like, I don't enjoy books when I read them now, <laughs> because I read them like a, like a writer. Right. Like, I look for the machinery. Like, oh, this is the part where you're doing... Yeah. And there's, I'm always really fascinated when the machinery works, but it does a thing that I wasn't expecting uh -huh. it to do. Like, that's when I feel like, oh, you're a writer. Like, you haven't just found the formula and you've written the formula. You are understanding. Yeah. Does something stick out in particular for you? Um, you know, I, for me, like, like Gatsby, I read Gatsby every year, um, which is, you know, it's like I have that, like, problem with every the kids' book. I see something. Oh my God. My life is Jay Gatsby. Like we, I was like a poor version of, um, Gat like I went to Berkeley for graduate school. I worked at MIT. Like I've always sort of aspired to this. Clearly not so tragic. Right. Well, I'm an addict too. So I almost died. So like I just made it out of the pools. Right. But it was, it was that wanting and desiring of, uh, a thing, you know, as a sort of like a poor kid wanting the acceptance of that, group that was never going to give it to me. And even once I achieved a certain point, I looked around. This is what I've told people. I was Michael Lewis's graduate assistant at Berkeley when he was working on what would become uh, Moneyball. And as he had just started the blind side, hanging out with Tom Wolf when he was on campus, like I was there mm -hmm. and I looked around and was like, this, I'm alone. Right. Cause it was just, it was not, I had not really cultivated the community of people around me. And then um, uh, sent a 5,000-word drunken email to Michael Lewis about what a fraud he was. 
So that like that was, while you were still his assistant. Yeah, yeah. While I was grass, we had uh, eight more weeks together. After that, it's become one of those legendary Berkeley stories of like what not to do <laughs> when you are. Um, the other one, which I was just telling one of my um, uh, friends about, is a separate piece. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've ever read that by Jonathan Knowles. Again, like those are kids' books, but that was such an interesting book because. It is about a kid that does a really bad thing and the repercussions that come from that and nobody knows that he's done it. Even though they kind of, Phineas kind of suspects that it's the case, but even Phineas won't deal with it because he's his friend. And and yet it leads, I don't feel like I can spoil it because it's 20 years old, but like it leads to the death of his friend. And what kind of weight do you carry? And I just thought, holy shit, like that is a book. It's not like Harry Potter where, like, very clearly Hermione should die because for Harry to ascend, he has to, there has to be some chance of loss. Mm-hmm. But you know that's not going to happen. Right. Separate piece wipes those people out. Mm-hmm. And you're like, holy shit, like, consequences have an issue. So to me, that was one of those, like, mechanisms of a book, um, you know, where Gatsby dies. Mm-hmm. And there's no punishment. Like, he had, he was Icarus, right? Like, he tried to do a thing that he couldn't, and as it turns out, the sun is not punished for burning you. Um, and the Phineas, like, sometimes you do things that destroy people, and nobody knows about it. And the worst thing for you is that you live your life and know that that's the thing you did. As a kid, those th- I, was, that, I was hooked. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, yeah. And, you know... Hearing you talk about that, it reminds me of, you know, we, um, especially in our sort of longer feature stories, our narrative features that we do, you know, we often talk about the ones that resonate the most are ones that, you know, there's some, you know, you have what the story is about, and then you have what the story is about. Yeah. And, you know, it's the stories that really um, stick with you are the ones that um, work to, you know, explore that larger truth yeah. that even if you haven't you know your actions haven't led to the death of someone yeah, yeah. you can still understand you know what's going on and it can affect you and I mean like we one of my writers here wrote a story about earlier this year about these brothers who um, claimed to have had uh, or one of them was lived in Brownsburg um, claimed to have uh, an alien encounter and he had been abducted by aliens allegedly and, you know, and so it was this really interesting um, sort of story about uh, sort of the subculture of, right. of people who think they've had these experiences, his specific experience with his family. And it's like, but the story really isn't about alien abduction. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's about, you know, brothers and how, right. you know, sort of traumatic shared events can bring them together or tear yeah. them apart. And so there's, there's like, you know, that elevates a story about alien abduction to something that, even if you've never been right, right, right. You can't understand it. It's, it's in the, uh, I tell my students, it's CNA, right? Like, this is the point. It's St. Crispian's speech. Like, it's not, it's when you realize it's not about winning or losing. It's about this bigger thing. And sort of regardless of what ends, whatever happens is actually not relevant anymore. Like, a really good act, too, is when you let people know. I, I was just talking about this with an author, um, uh, uh, Andrea Jackson Brown, who is going to be at the jam, but she just wrote a book, and it is a fictionalized memoir. Mm-hmm. 
um, because she couldn't write it as a first. It was she, it was you know, it was abuse and things in it, and so she needed to it needed to have a different ending than what happened in life. Um, and we were talking about the box, right? Like bad stories are there are people that live in a box and don't know they're in one. Whether you're poor, black, women, there's always a box. And then there are people that are that know that the box exists, right? And really good writing finds those stories and says, "Here's this box." Right, and now we're going to pull out and say this is this is sort of what that means, and that's the tragedy of most of those, for lack of a better term, the boxes. Right, is that when people don't know or can't deal, or um, that resonates with every human being on the planet because we all have that in some manner, shape, or form. Um, of course, finding that is hard. Right. Oh, that's not hard. <laughs> right. <laughs> Have you read Studs Terkel at all? Studs Turk was a columnist in Chicago who used to just put his tape recorder down and he'd ask people, and it was oral history. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called Working. Um, it may have been called The American Dream. Uh, race. Uh-huh. And he just asked lots of different people, tell me what you think about race. There'd be I'm little... Oh, my God. They're amazing, right? They're, because they removed the writer from the long form. Uh-huh. It is... Just the narrative of these people, which I find fascinating. Right. I mean, that's, you know, um, you know, one of my, the editor emeritus of Atlanta Magazine, he was gone before I was there, but he's still been a great mentor to me. You know, he was like, nothing is, nothing, you know, even if something seems small, it only is if you think it is. Right. And it's your job as a journalist and writer to, to find out what's special about that scene. Right. And that's the empathy, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think it's, I, I think that good writers have the kind of background that you have, which is, I like dark, I like this, I like, because you have that David Foster Wallace, this is water ability to go, well, maybe this isn't what I think it is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's that curiosity factor. It's that, you know, I just want to soak up and learn as much as I can. Yeah, but you have to be interested in the other person's perspective right. to get it it's right. not just i i tell people all the time the books and things that i hate uh Kyrie mostly nonfiction are when character people are characters right i love characters but people can't be a plot device yeah to get you to the thing you want to get to that's in a weird sort of i judge writers like you're, you're like very, there's two kinds there's either writers people who do these kinds of things and like hacks who just like here's the structure and I can kind of crank this stuff out um I'm really fascinated when I find characters that play against what you expect right because they because people are complicated oh yeah I mean we did so this is um last year my husband is a magazine writer and um I've I've gotten to do one story for us since we've (laughs) been here Uh, he's, he's been a little busy but it was, um, we saw that one of the hospitals here was starting a program called Melendazolone. And um, it was, uh, they were going to train volunteers to sit with people yeah. who were, you know, sort of at that hospice stage of dying who didn't have any family or friends um, or anyone else to sit with them. <laughs> and, you know, as soon as I read, you know, it was just a little blurb that I read about it. And as soon as I read it, I was like, wow, there's, this, you know, that's part of my job. You know, all of our jobs, editors, is to, to, follow that gut sometimes. Right. And sometimes it leads to a dead end. 
Yeah. Um, but I that was, was like, a bad <laughs> turn of phrase for that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I, I contacted the, um, the, the the press guy for the volunteer program, and I was like, you know, would you be open to us sending a rider to follow someone who was dying and the volunteers who were sitting with them? If the, of course, you know, Hippocratic Oath, you still have right, to get right. their permission yeah. to do this. And he was like, sure, you know, it's going to take a little while for us to get this up and running. But so about six months later, it, it took that long. He was like, okay, we're, we're in the place where we've trained volunteers. I'm going to start being on the lookout. And um, so we got a call, and my husband was really interested in the story. And um, we got a call, I think it was last August. And he was like, okay, there's there's someone that, that has agreed, is, you know, with it enough, essentially, to um, be able to agree to do this. And, um, so he goes in and starts spending time with this woman, um, Susan Cox. The name of the story is Susan Cox is no longer here. And, um, you know, she's very open about what her life has been like. Um, but, and the volunteers all have these amazing stories. And then she doesn't die. And, you know, it's, it turns out to be this really um, interesting look at <laughs> sort of the choices you make when you're about to die. And, um, you know, she had, she had cancer and she had decided to kind of go through this sort of last round, yeah. this last um, attempt. And, and, it, and it prolonged her life um, for a while, but it ended up totally changing her personality. Really? So, so Not like because, oh, I've seen the print, but because of the brain. And so Justin saw her from when she was still with it, with Susan, to the weeks after when she was a completely different person. Holy shit. And the story, and, and you know, the story completely was a 180 from the story we thought it was going to yeah. be. And it ended up, you know, being the richer for it because, you know, death is messy. Yeah. People are messy. And this is life. And we don't messy. really talk a lot about it. Right. Have you read the Mary Roach stuff? Oh um, no! About she the one that did stiff. Yeah, I wanted to read that. Yeah. I think I think Justin has it at home. She used to write for Wired. Like she used to, it was just one of those like when a Mary Roach thing would come by, you'd be like, oh shit, this is gonna be weird. Yeah. Like really good, but like yeah. something that I would never have thought about looking at. Right, and we just got we got such an amazing response from that story. Um, it ended up, you know, once we put it online, it ended up I think being one of our most uh, yeah. popular stories of the year. And you, it which was a little, I mean, you know, it wasn't exactly an upper. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, People don't was, want that. Right. I mean, they don't want that every week. Sure. <laughs> but, but, you know, it was... It's, it's human. We all go through. Yeah. I mean, we're all going to go through death at, at some point. Yeah. And, Multiple times. Yeah. Not just your own. Right. Not just your own. Yeah. And, you know, in, in her story and, like, how she dealt with death and, and why the people, the volunteers were there. Yeah. I mean, they all had interesting yeah. death-related reasons. Um, right. That's the, It's always, you know, somebody... Ha- Every charity is filled with people that were, yeah, I mean, nobody's like, hey, I want to, you know, live phone call. like somebody they know. This is like, this, this, one of the things that I'm trying, so every year I run a, a, a I pick the best writers at school and we, we write memoir books. We mm-hmm. particularly, it's a book that comes out called The Indictus Writers. And I think next year when I'm going, and it's always uh, personal because I want writers to understand they have to go find a moment where their lives change write the story, but they're not allowed to write it from their perspective. Mm-hmm. They have to go find out. So, you know, like, 
couple that women have had eating disorders, mm-hmm. and they had to go write about what that did to everybody in their lives. So you have to report it as though yeah. you almost weren't even a part of it. Yeah, and you are a character in your story, but like your eating disorder is a this, or one of my students was a former, he was at Fallujah, which was the, uh, or, or he was at Samara, the staging ground for Fallujah, and so he was writing about sort of everything that led up to that, because he's a small town in Canterbury, mm-hmm. suddenly he's in the worst shit in the history of the world right. from his perspective. Um, and he had to write about all the things that led that to happen. But I think next year what I want them to do is that Stud Sturgle thing, is to say, let's pick an idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the east side. And you go over and find people and just ask them, like, what is the east side? Right. Who are you here? Right? Like, who are you here? And just because I find that that's the kind of, I'm sure that that was the kind of story that, what was her name, Susan? Susan Cox. Susan Cox is no longer here, right? Like, that's what that was. It was, they are, it was really probably profiles of people on the edge of a cliff. I mean, that was definitely, definitely part of it. I mean, you're getting um, these, these backstories um, and, and how, you know, in, in sort of any moment you know, that, that we write about, there's the thing that happens, and there's how everyone got to, yeah. that's involved with it, got to that, that point. And yeah. that certainly, you know, um, you know, in that example, I, I think one of the volunteers' daughter had been murdered and had died alone. Yeah. She would always regret it that her daughter had yeah. died alone, and she didn't know that for someone else. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, it's. I mean, it's the trauma of... Uh, and several of the interviews that we, these conversations that I've had so far, I've had the writers tell me, like, this feels like therapy. I'm like, yeah, like, you do, I mean, it's very clear, like, this happens, so you are right, like, this is your theme that people don't see, right? Because, oh, there was something like that, obviously. But did, did that woman identify, like, this was, like, her new life? Did she understand that she was doing that because she was trying to, like, understand her daughter. Oh, yeah. So she was very cognizant of that. I think everyone was pretty self-aware really? about why they were there and we're, we're relatively open now. You know, That's amazing. But this was, you know, it's talking about the, the writing process. I mean, I know, I know this obviously because I, I live with the writer, <laughs> but probably unlike anything that he's ever written, his story really affected him. Um, I mean, really brought it home, you know, yeah. in a Felt like in a days, some days, yeah. and, and then even months afterward. And I'm sure there's no way you finish that story and feel like you've written something that honored everybody that was there. Right. No matter how good you think it is, there's just stuff not there. Right. 5,000 words you find is the blink of an eye. Right, absolutely. Is that a book? Is he doing that as a book? That's a book. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, Are you being coy with me? No, no, I'm really not. I mean, he's... Um, Tell him that's a book. I mean, that's a book without even trying. Yeah. It's, I mean, it was, it was fascinating. Yeah. Um, and it's called Guardian Angels. That's the name of the book. <laughs> you, you've done a lot of work for it. Now you see a publisher. <laughs> and an advance, a big advance. Yeah, I can't do the last one, but I know a lot of publishers. Uh, yeah, what a great series of stories about the people that do that, right? Because that's just... Have you read the Henrietta Lacks book? No, uh, that's Rebecca Skloot, right? Yeah, it's infuriating. It's infuriating. 
because it's the opposite of what you've just described. In what way? It feels very much like, I don't know, I mean, I, I have read her stuff, I don't know if this is, if she's white. It felt very much like a white middle class girl was like, holy crap, black people have, have had bad things happen to them. Like, she, as she's trying to find these people, she's trying to contextualize that this was like a poor black woman. It is written very much like um, a discovery mm-hmm. instead of, there just wasn't, it didn't feel critical. It didn't feel like, yeah, I, haven't, I haven't read that one yet. Um, it didn't feel like, hey, let's look at the medical industry as a whole and see if this is a thing. It mm-hmm. felt very much like what I've heard the help is like, which is like the white girl's version mm-hmm. of, <laughs> you know, uh, sort of post-slavery stuff. Um, yeah, but that, but the, the story of what you just described sounds like the opposite of that, which is like embedding with people and spending lots of time with them. And that's, you know, that's what I, that's again, why I love magazines and I love what we do here is that, you know, we have, you know, the time and the resources to allow people to tell these sorts of stories and to spend a couple of months or four months or six months on a story and really develop it. And um, Do you spend that much time on the most long-form narrative features? It, it totally depends. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, uh, a long-form story can be turned around in, you know, six to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've had, I think, I think Justin spent, you know, about three months on that Susan Cox story. Um, we had a story um, about a, a Ponzi schemer that ran last year that I think you know, he was working on other things in the meantime, but the writer spent probably six months on yeah. just reporting and re-reporting, and, <laughs> you know, Legal. Uh, writing, yeah. and, uh, um, procrastinating, <laughs> <laughs> his words. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, that's, we're, we're able to do that here and give, give people sort of the room to tell these really rich stories that maybe slip through the cracks yeah. if we're not the ones to do it. Well, I mean, we say that. Or you said that, but like the cracks are pretty big these days in the media landscape. I mean, there's not. I mean, it's you know, we, we, we always talk about like you know, idea generation is both the hardest thing we do, most exciting thing we do. I mean, we're always looking for that sort of golden nugget of yeah. the story, and you know, those ideas come from everywhere. But you know, one place we're always looking is you know the the local newspapers, the local, you know, newsletters, just seeing these little nuggets of stories that maybe other people don't have the time and resources to follow up on. Um, You know, uh, in the August issue, we did a story about, um, my my senior editor, Michael Rubino, wrote a story about um, a boy um, with half a brain. So oh, yeah, yeah. His parents yeah. made the decision, um, you know, he was going into seizures, and his parents made the deci- decision to, you know, um, to essentially leave him with half a brain, mo- most of one. Um, there was just a big psychology book about this. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, and so that's, it's about the, the sort of the medical yeah. um, story there, but it's also about, you know, uh, being a parent and having yeah. to make a decision like that and then live with it. Yeah. For better, for worse. And, um, you know, that was, that came from, you know, the writer read like a little... It was like um, a column in the newspaper story. or something, yeah? Um, and I think it was like a Zionsville newsletter. Yeah. That, you know, he saw that and said, I think there's there's more yeah. to tell here. There literally was just a book by a big-name psychiatrist. I read it like three, four weeks ago. Oh, it's about the brain, and there's a whole chapter about the science of being able to live with half a brain. Mm-hmm. And like if you're before eight, mm-hmm. you, I was like the whole time like, how is this not... 
How do I, how am I just finding that out? I feel like I should have known that ahead of time. And, and this little boy, you know, as as you know, his doctor you know uses him. There's there's a scene in the story about where he's sort of showing him as a success story at a conference. I mean, you know, it's it's not not everyone has this done right. has a happy ending. And he was a little bit older, yeah. He was he was a babe. I think he was about a year old when he had the oh, surgery. Oh, I thought he was older than that. I think I'm pretty. I'm, if yeah. I remember correctly, I think he was. Yeah, and there are like some motor things that you have to, you can't do, and but there are your brain at that age can, the left and right hemisphere can learn to. It's just it was bad. It was just one of those like holy moly. There's so much that I don't know. Yeah, it can be it can be really resilient. It doesn't happen for everyone. Right. There is that. Yeah, it's um it's one of the interesting parts about at least the magazine because I I had two world you know, internationally known editors. So I got to see them work through the story process and like from what it would be pitched to until they would decide that it was okay. It was just brutal. I mean, it was, I always told people like that writing seems to be the easiest part. Like is getting through that gauntlet and getting the nugget down to, because they wouldn't, you know, until you can say like this is what it's about, mm-hmm. you already had to do the reporting stuff here. Sounds like, do you have like a stable of folks here that you're like, okay, you go explore that, or is the exploration stuff really more of the staff writers? Um, so we have, you know, we have a pretty small staff, and so um, everyone here on staff both edits and writes. Yeah. And the shameful part is that um, they're all really great writers, and they don't probably all have as much time to write yeah. as they would like. This is just the universal. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and, um, but there are, you know, some really great feature writers on staff. And, um, you know, it's so they're, you know, they're often taking the initiative to go and dig into these yeah. stories. Or we have, you know, um, some freelancers who are real go-getters. Yeah, yeah. You know, we'll, we'll plunge in and try to see what's there. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. But it's largely, I'm guessing, most of the exploration stuff comes from the people that are. Um, it depends. I mean, you know, they're 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 freelancers. You know, that pitch great stories. Yeah. I'm like, I need more. Right, right. To be able to, you know. Particularly if you don't know them. Right, right. And so, you know, I'll have them. I'll have them dig more. But those are those are the stories that they're coming up with on their own. Yeah. We, if we give them a nugget, then you know, a, a lot of times we kind of know that there's something there. Yeah. We just yeah. need to find out. Yeah, death and half a brain are two pretty easy stories to like. Right. Those are ones that are going to resonate to people. So, what's the are, what like? Um, you mostly edit. Do you have aspirations to? Do you have the writing bug? I would love to. Um, you know, I, would, I wish I had time to contribute more writing here, and it feels like every time I agree to do something, I end up regretting it yeah. just because I just don't have as much time. But I, um, I think. You know, I'd love to do more nonfiction writing. I, I'd also, I think, like try my hand at fiction yeah. someday. Um, and it's tough because, you know, when you read and write all day, getting home and doing more reading and writing yeah. can sometimes feel impossible. Yeah. And so sometimes I just want to go home and like watch trashy TV <laughs> and veg out on the couch. Yeah. And you know, t- when I hear people who are like, you know, who work. You know their their jobs, and they get up at like five o'clock in the morning to get in that hour of writing. And I'm like, 
I wish I could do that, right. but I can't. And yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I've tried, um, <laughs> and and you know, it's I, and so that's a challenge for me. I don't know how to have how to build in the time and to find the energy yeah. to try those different kinds of writing. Yeah, it gets worse as you get older. Yeah, like I have to, if I don't write by three p.m. It's not, no, I can read, I can, you know, I can do noty stuff, but I have a hard time, um, you know, uh, my best writing happens early in the morning. We actually bought a fifth wheel and put it on a lake mm-hmm. uh, down on uh, Morgan Monroe so mm-hmm. that I, I can go down on the weekends and just me and the dog and uh, my wife comes most of the time, but uh, when school's out of session, it's not okay. like, oh yeah, I have to, like it's the only, because I, even in my office I can't. I just redid my whole office yesterday. I'm that writer, right? That's like, oh, the laundry needs to be done. Right, like, right. My room needs to be cleaned. <laughs> yeah, I tell my first-year writers all that. I don't teach many of them because I scare them. But I'm like, writing is doing the laundry. Mm-hmm. That's that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and they're contemplating. And then at some point, you should be able to write. But if you see the laundry and you want to do it, it means you're not ready to write yet. Right. Um, or you're not a writer. <laughs> it's like one of those two. So you don't have a... a, a like a book, you're not thinking about a book. You just like you want to explore. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I have a, a really great idea right now. But I'm I'm interested in in books that um, do um, generational writing really mm-hmm. well, like that. You follow a story um, or, or a family over a couple of generations. I think that's really. I mean, one writer that comes to mind that I think does that really well is um, Zandi Smith. I remember when I read White Teeth. Um, I just thought, wow, this is sort of woven together almost in, in, a, in a magical way. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, talking about books that, that make you stop and yeah. go, wow, look at what that writer's just done. Yeah. She, she and that book really, um, you know, stood out for me in that way because I just remember putting it down when I finished it and it was like, this was, you know, really masterful the way this was put together. Yeah. So what's the... Um we got off this a little bit. So you you apply, what, when did you get here? When did you guys arrive so, here? Um, I've been here um, just a little more than two and a half years now. It'll be three years in February. And so you came from Atlanta Magazine to here to this gig. I did, I did because um, you know I thought I thought one day that this is this is what I'd want to do be an editor in chief. And is it? Um, yeah, I mean some days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it was. You know, I told um, both of my editors at Atlanta. Um, I told that I think I you know, thought I wanted to do this one day, and so they let me. Um, you know, they sort of took me under their wing yeah. and, and showed me some of the ropes. But I was still only like this much prepared. Like yeah. Nothing um, really prepares you for a job like this yeah. until you're sort of thrown into it. Um, I feel like that is everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and like you learn it, and you're like, I got it. I, I don't. Yeah. Some days I feel like I'm swimming. Some days I feel like I'm sinking. Yeah. But, you know, it's, um, it's, it's been a, I'm, you know, there's some days when I'm, I'm getting to, you know, edit and put together the magazine and brainstorm and collaborate with the designers, which I love. And, you know, it feels like a really invigorating, you know, I, I accomplished journalism today. Uh-huh. And then there are some days where it's five o'clock and I'm like, what am I doing today? Yeah. What? I sat in meetings yeah. and... You know, things like that are still crucial to, to getting the sausage made, yeah. but it can be, um, can be a little frustrating. Yeah, I call that the two list. 
Like when you get done, you're like nothing got done. It was just I was just on a list <laughs> of things that happened. Like I have nothing to accomplish. Do you guys do um? This, so part of what I have done throughout my life because I started this digital stuff in ninety. I, I worked at Cincinnati City Beat in 1994. Um, and I, my news editor wouldn't let me, I used to tell him that into the library to get the clip so that I wouldn't have to go down to the library. And she wouldn't let me do that because she didn't trust the internet. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Because <laughs> right, it's the same thing. Like, There's nothing different. Um, so most of my life has been spent digital at Wired, you know, at Technology Review. Um, and so as I have advised different companies, one of the things I'm always interested in are, particularly in magazines, is the repackaging of stuff is like singles and digitals and stuff. Is that a thing you got? Like, I feel like magazine companies should be little mini book publishers. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've you know, talked about that. We're not really doing that right now. Um, but, you know, it's something that when we talk about, you know, going back to sort of the packaging of the magazine and more and more we're talking about, you know, how to bring... Um, sort of digital storytelling elements mm-hmm. into what we're doing and how can we enhance this in a way that makes sense because again we don't have a huge staff, yeah. we don't have a huge budget we have like a digital department of one yeah. so how can we it's always that way how can we do something smart that works for us yeah. that, that, that also works for readers and that's a, a, a constant challenge um, but you know it's um, do you know Jay Stowe? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So I worked with him a long time ago on this, like uh, back when Margaret was there. I think her name was Margaret. Uh, but Jay used to work for Alex. Uh, so I worked for Alex Hurd at Wired, uh-huh. who's now at Outside. And Jay worked for Alex. So when he moved to Cincinnati, which is where I'm from, Alex was like, "Oh, you should meet Brad." Yeah. Great. yeah. Um, so I sort of know like the staff size of places like this, um, and I did some. Uh, work with text monthly which mm-hmm. is obviously a little bit bigger than um but i i just find it so like it's uh i'm an editor at it, carnegie mellon um for their book publishing and journal publishing press and it's just me and i we put out digital things it's actually really quite simple to do mm-hmm. and there are so many good pieces that are in magazines that can be decoupled at the end of the year um, like the Atavis platform is nice, like right. doing all the multi. Yeah. So Evan and I worked together at Wired. Uh-huh. He was on the fact check desk, um, the guy who founded the Atavis. Um, and that stuff is great, but it's almost impossible for small magazines to do that in any sort of consistent money making way. Right. Um, but the tools to do the digital packaging of digital stuff, uh, of uh, um, small books, I really think that that's going to be one of those things that when people start to figure that out, Will be one of the. It won't be a big money maker, yeah. but like the big five publishers are not that great anymore. Mm-hmm. They're great for what they do, but I feel like these small and regional that city magazines have that. Like I think that's the space because you either have really small places like Engine Books or whatever mm-hmm. that have like this. You have big publishers, and then you have this vast empty world in between where writers are their mid career. Like, in the sense of they're not Stephen King, but they're not just out of high school. You know, like, they're that, I'd like to do something. Yeah. Do you guys think about those kinds of... Like, the, the digital packaging? Yeah, and just, like, where do you fit in that whole publishing, not just the magazine ecosphere, but, like, the sphere of words and where we're at today. 
I mean, I think that... Or is putting out the magazine. Yeah. I also know that's... Well, you know, it's it's sort of a, a... I don't know if I have a great answer for that, but, you know, I want... We obviously are a city magazine, yeah. so, you know, our reader first is an, an Indianapolis reader. And, you know, I think that ultimately we want to, you know, help people enjoy the city, but also help them make, you know, make them smarter about yeah. the city. And... Um, so, you know, we want to sort of serve um, serve that community, but so many of our, I think, feature stories, our long-form stories have, you know, gotten picked up on Bonn or in long-form. And yeah, stories, and there's... Nothing you've described to me is Indianapolis-centric, even though it's here. Sure. Like, that is a thing anybody would read. And, you know, I do, I do, I mean, I read stories from where, I think that's what we found in the last couple of years, especially with the advent of you know, this sort of appreciation for these longer stories is that, um, you know, now that there's so much more, I mean, 10 years ago, it would be hard to read a great feature story from Portland. Right. You know, now it's like I can do it with a click right. of a mouse. And, you know, there's some stories that are just really going to resonate no matter, I mean, like Texas Monthly is our sister magazine, and it's like they run so many great true crime stories. Yeah. It's like... I don't live here. This crime didn't really affect yeah. me, but like, ooh, this is some good stuff, yeah. you know? And, and they have one person dedicated to writing those. I mean, they have a true crime at a reporter. Yeah, I mean, they, they, <laughs> they do the, they do wonderful stuff. Because it's Texas. But, you know, so, so I think there's an opportunity there to not only serve our community, but to really be known as a place that, that you know, does the type of storytelling that... Um, that, that people appreciate, yeah. and um, and so that's that's you know I think a nice I think a nice goal on top of on top of serving our sort of local communities, yeah. because you know it sort of um, you know it helps uh, you know when you're when you're when you get a story that that people say oh that's you know something Indianapolis Monthly did it, it you know it may lead to people pitching yeah. stories um, it may lead to new freelance writers yeah. it may you know May enrich the magazine in ways that you don't really. Indie monthly books. That's I want to see that. Okay. Indie, That's what we can do. Uh-huh. It's it, it's it is surprisingly simple, uh-huh. and when you have, um, it doesn't cost any money. Mm-hmm. That's the really nice thing. Like if you have a design staff already, it's really simple. I just feel like. Um, that's the thing that most interests me about magazines, like, is the ability to, I feel like they're the new small publishers because it's the only place where long-form writing stuff is really seriously happening. I mean, newspapers have been gutted. Um, weeklies, you know, like the places where a lot of people used to cut their teeth, there are not that many of them anymore. When they are, they're shoppers. You know, like, it is just, it, even from 94 when I started, I feel like we had long form pieces in Cincinnati City Beat, like 10,000 word right. pieces. You just don't see that anymore. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, I, we've been here for an hour. I know you have things to do, like put out a magazine. Thank you for talking to me. No, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So there you have it. That was my conversation with Amanda. Smart, 
I love the fact that she loves books and reading and that she edits and her hobby is reading um, and that she thinks very deeply about writing. And that the thing that I think distinguishes writers, and, and I can only say this uh, because I, I am a writer, and so obviously I, I think this, is that you have, a, I think writers have a broad knowledge about the world and a broad curiosity about the world. And they need to be able to think about other people in ways, and not like, oh, you know, so-and-so is having a bad day, but to get into their shoes and understand them. And I will say, like, li- I could listen to Amanda talk all day long. Like, she just has that accent, right, that, that makes you want to sit down and listen. But there's another quality that I don't know if it uh, comes through because you weren't in the room, which is that she is engaged in listening. And so I find myself talking, and I would have to remind myself, like, this was not a conversation about what I thought this was about her, but she's very um, intense when she listens. Uh, and I just think when, when we talk about what makes a good editor and a, a good writer, I, I don't know what she writes, but the qualities that came out in that conversation for me was that she was probably a great editor because she's able to, she's well-read, she's curious about lots of things. She is contemplative about what the writer's doing, and she listens. Like These are things that editors need to do. And at the end, she made sure to tell me that I uh, need to get in touch with her husband, who is a writer. That is coming up. We will do that very soon. And I'm excited about that because the story that uh, we talked about, uh, just I could do an hour on that, just, just on that. Just a reminder, the Downtown Writers Jam... Wednesday, November 12th at Indy Reads Books, 6.30 to 8.30. Afterwards, we hang out at the Chatham Tap. Our friends at Curbside Publishing, Bill Hillman, Ben Tanzen, Erica T. Worth are coming down. Trey Dowell from Simon & Schuster up from St. Louis. It's going to be a good time. Angela Jackson Brown, we do publishing. In fact, I have her book. She left it it's right here, drinking from a bitter cup. Looking forward to picking that up next week as soon as I finish Bill's book. You can find us at thegeekypress.com backslash events. That's where all the information about what we do with the jam. Sign up for the newsletter while you're at the site. Tell a friend, bring a neighbor. Until then, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.